0: our 28th Rising Tide Ocean podcast. I'm David Helvarg here with my co-host Vicki Nichols Goldstein.
1: Well hello there everyone.
0: And today we're talking with an old friend and amazing adventurer Roz Savage. Roz is the first and so far only woman to row solo across the Atlantic, Pacific and Indian Oceans. Also the first Brit. She holds several Guinness World Records and is now known as Dame Roz Savage after being appointed a member of the Order of the British Empire for her services to fundraising in the environment, particularly that 71% of the environment that's saltwater, and that she probably knows more intimately than almost any other human being on earth. So welcome, Roz, and and let's start with this. As a little girl, you didn't dream of growing up and rowing your own way across the world's oceans, did you?
2: (laughs) Most definitely not. Um, No, I was probably the least likely to row across oceans or indeed do anything remotely energetic. Now, I was, I was really um, hopeless at all sports at school. Uh, I was the bookworm. But maybe the formative influence from that time was my parents, both of whom were Methodist preachers. So maybe I grew up with this general idea that it's important to have a, a purpose in this life, um, some sense of calling or vocation, and to try and leave the world a slightly better place, hopefully, than we found it.
0: And yet initially you moved into like management consulting or... um, I hear there's a story about an obituary you wrote for yourself.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. The management consulting was definitely my um, belated teenage rebellion. Um, (laughs) Buying into the the materialistic myth after the um, more frugal circumstances of my childhood. Yeah, I totally bought into the Thatcherite, Reaganite um, story that... Um, Success and happiness is all about having the the yuppie job and the big house and um, all of the material things. And and yes, I think on some level I knew right from the start that that was not what was really going to bring me joy and fulfilment. And what really brought that home to me, well, first of all, was the fact that after 11 years... Working a corporate job, I was profoundly miserable. So clearly money was not buying me happiness. Um, But then also, as you say, David, um, the obituary exercise. um, I sort of borrowed from the seven habits of highly effective people, which I expect you're familiar with. And habit number two is begin with the end in mind. And um, the exercise invites you to start with the ultimate end in mind, um, your own funeral and to imagine what people are gonna be saying about you if you carry on as you are, and alternatively, what you would like them to be saying about you. And when I sat down and did that exercise over 20 years ago now, I realized that I was not on track for a life that I could be proud of. So yeah, some things had to change. So normally somebody
1: in that situation might decide to you know, run a marathon, or start up a new business. This seems a very dramatic change to decide to row hundreds of miles alone in the ocean. How did you get from this point where you're kind of writing the end to completely transforming your life?
2: Well, well, thousands of miles. (laughs) Well, I did actually run a couple of marathons um, because people had said you find out things about yourself in the last six miles of a marathon. Um, I did find out things about myself, um, specifically that I really hate running. (laughs) Um, I did also try starting a couple of new businesses, which were very informative experiences. After I quit my corporate job, there was actually a period of about four years between then and me deciding to row across oceans. And I call those four years my my happy dabbling phase when I was really trying to figure out who am I? What brings me joy? Um, I tried various different enterprises and learned something from all of them. None of them felt like a perfect fit. You know, I think as humans, we're we're fairly poor at knowing exactly what's going to work for us unless we actually try it. And then through a weird series of just synchronicities and serendipities, I'd I'd met a friend who had rode across the Atlantic with his mother, of all people, and um, so suddenly those adventurer people that up until that point in my life all seemed to be bearded and I clearly didn't qualify on that score to find out that someone's mother could go out and have a pretty major adventure and the fact that I'd rode before somehow all of these things just clicked into place and I wish I could say that I had the idea but I would actually say it it was more that the idea had me I don't know if you've ever had this experience when you've been obsessing over a a question a problem an issue for quite a while like six months and desperately yearning for an answer and then suddenly when you're not really focusing on the question an answer that you totally didn't expect just comes out of left field and blindsides you and you go oh my word that is the best idea that I ever had and then your (laughs) ego mind kicks in and goes no, that's actually seriously a totally terrible idea. <laughs> you you have no other than being able to row, you have no credentials to be able to do this. You'd rowed uh, so in I spend, yeah, but being able to row is about 1% of what it takes to row across an ocean. It by really yourself. doesn't help all that much by yourself. Yeah, it's much more about um, seamanship. It's about keeping your boat together, your body together, and your mind together. As I was to learn. But I do think that for me personally, there was something really helpful about having rowed before because it gave me the uh, misguided delusion that rowing across oceans was something that I was vaguely qualified to do. You know, it didn't really seem that hard. And um, I suspect as any parent would acknowledge, if we knew at the outset of what we learn later about just how big a challenge is, we'd probably never leave the harbour. So my first ocean was going to be the Atlantic, which is not exactly the nursery slope of oceans. There isn't really a nursery slope, but um, it is the smallest of the big three and the most often rowed. And um, I spent 14 months getting ready for it, buying a boat, getting fit, raising money getting the boat all fitted out with the solar panels and all of the equipment that I was going to need, taking the training courses in navigation and meteorology and communications. So I thought I was really ready for it, but I didn't realise I'd picked the worst possible year to row across the Atlantic. It was the year of hurricanes Katrina and Rita and Wilma. And in fact, there were 28 named storms that year, which makes it by far the worst year um, on the Atlantic in recorded history. So pretty soon after I set out from the Canaries off the coast of Africa, the big waves, the, the heavy weather just started to take its toll. I got tendonitis at my shoulders. Oars started to break. I had four oars with me. They all broke before I got halfway across. So I got really good at oar fixing. (laughs) Camping stove broke, so no hot food after 12 hours of rowing in the day. And later on, um, my satellite phone, which was my only way of communicating with shore, that also broke. So, yeah, in short, there wasn't a single day when I didn't ask myself, why the hell did this ever seem like a good idea? Um, I'm really, really glad that I had the two massive motivations. One was the the environmental mission. You know, I really wanted to use this platform through my blogs and my talks and my books, blogs while I was on the ocean and talks and books once back on dry land, to to talk about what we're doing to our precious planet. And then there was also this really deep-rooted personal exploration of having had, I would say, a pretty easy life up to that point, I was lucky enough to be in this position of choosing my challenges. You know, a lot of people get a wake-up call when they are bereaved or divorced or get a diagnosis, and it's then that we really find out what we can handle. Like, when we're really up against it, what, what can we find in the in terms of resourcefulness or courage. And like I say, I was lucky enough to choose my own challenge. And boy, <laughs> did the Atlantic challenge me every single day. But I, it felt like a rite of passage, really, a coming of age, um, ocean crossing. And I found out that I was capable of a heck of a lot more than I'd ever even dared to imagine. And I genuinely think we all are. I mean, there's really nothing special about me. I, I don't particularly look like a row, as I've already said. I'm not particularly athletic. I didn't know that I was brave until I needed to be. You know, that's really the essence of it.
0: So you came into Antigua in what, 2005 or 6?
2: Yep, left the Canaries in 2005 and arrived in Antigua March 13th, 2006. <laughs> not that it's <laughs> indelibly imprinted on my memory.
0: <laughs> well, here's the amazing thing, you spoke out for the ocean that you crossed and you discovered a lot about yourself and your capabilities and what a heroic journey. And then a year later, my friend Margot Pellegrino introduces me to you and you want to row another larger ocean, the Pacific. What, what was going on? What is going on? <laughs>
2: Well, actually, the intention right from the start had been to, well, the original intention was to row around the world. But then once I found out more about how oceans work, um, I discovered that although you can sail around the world, rowing, you're much more at the mercy of the winds and the currents, you're going much more slowly than a sailboat does. Um, So I found out that realistically, I could only row across um, the world's big three oceans. So even though the Atlantic had been really, really hard, every time that I um, had a little insight into how I could do this better the next time around, it actually really helped me that I was already expecting to do a couple more oceans. Uh, So I really felt that I was learning a lot on the Atlantic about how not to row across an ocean and that I would do it better the next time. And also because on the Atlantic, for most of the time, I felt like I was hanging on to my sanity by my fingertips. I felt I hadn't really fully stepped into that environmental advocacy role that had been the, you know, the initial motivation. So yeah, to me, it was it was obvious that I was going to carry on and do the Pacific. But as you know, David, that didn't go quite according to plan either.
0: <laughs> August 21st, 2007, uh, you described to me as you said it felt like a car on the train track suddenly being slammed in the side by a, a full-on locomotive. What what happened on that day? You were 40, 140 miles off California. What was the scene? Please please tell us.
2: Yeah, I, I'd set out from Crescent City, um, way up near the border with Oregon, and realistically weather forecasts are only accurate to about a week out so my weatherman could send me out into favourable conditions but neither of us could tell what was going to happen a bit further out. So um, I got to 10 days out from the coast and ran into big waves, heavy weather, and my boat was really capsizing more than it should have been. So these ocean rowboats, they're designed to self-right if they capsize. Still not a load of laughs while it's happening, but it seemed strange that it was um, that much more unstable than it had been on the Atlantic. Um, And as I've already said, the weather on the Atlantic was pretty atrocious. So long story short, I'd mentioned on my blog that I was having a few issues out there, I'd lost my sea anchor. The boat and I were getting a little bit dinged up and um, somebody decided that I ought to be rescued by the US Coast Guard, which would not have been my choice but there we go. Um, Should we say it was an excess of gallantry. So um, the first I knew of this was when a, a Coast Guard fixed wing plane showed up overhead and there then ensued a very long conversation about whether or not I should be rescued with the Coast Guard very much being of the view that I should be and me very much being of the view that I shouldn't be. (laughs) Um, But ultimately it it came to the crunch um, about an hour before sunset when I was already right on the edge of the potential rescue by a helicopter, which has a limited range from the, from the coast. And there's a a saying in the adventure world, that it's better to be a live donkey than a dead lion. And given that I'd lost some important equipment, I decided to accept the rescue. But yeah, that was, that was a bad, bad, bad day at the office. Because unfortunately, bad news gets a lot more coverage than good news. So um, my my rescue got many more press column inches than any of my successes ever did. But hey, all the more publicity for the environmental mission. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm sorry, you
0: you had me at my boat was capsizing more than it should have. Uh, (laughs) Most of us think once is more than it should.
1: Did you feel like your life was in danger with your loss of equipment, with the capsizing? I mean, did you ever feel truly afraid and somewhat relieved that you had, a, had an out?
2: Actually, the scariest bit was the rescue itself, <laughs> because um, after the Atlantic crossing, you know, I really trusted my boat. It took a while for me to develop that trust because You know, when you're in that little cabin and the waves are crashing around, it's really noisy in there. And the first couple of weeks on the Atlantic, I couldn't believe that the boat wasn't going to just disintegrate under the the pressure of the water. But by the time I got to the Pacific, the boat had already taken good care of me. But then when you get rescued or airlifted, you have to jump out of your boat and into these 25 foot waves to get over to the rescue swimmer, the guy who's hanging on the end of the line from the helicopter. And suddenly your boat looks like a real haven of safety compared with jumping out of it. I also really want to say that um, I have the utmost respect for the US Coast Guard, and I don't mean to sound ungrateful to them for, you know, I realised they were also putting their lives in danger. And in fact, we did almost run out of fuel on the way back to shore because they were right on the edge. And then the place we were going to land got socked in with fog, as the California coast tends to. So it was it was nearly an even worse day at the office for everybody. So I am grateful to them. And I'm actually still in touch with the, uh, the pilot of the helicopter. It's, it's strange the way that you make friends <laughs> on oceans. And were they able to <laughs> rescue your boat? Great question, Vicky. No, <laughs> unfortunately, that's that's not part of the Coast Guard deal. Um, so um, I arrived back on land with no ID, no money, only the clothes that I stand up in. Um, I was brought back to Northern California, had to somehow get back to San Francisco and launch a salvage um, attempt because my boat was now officially flotsam and jetsam and if somebody else had got to it first under the law of the sea it would have been theirs so there was a pressure of time and luckily I mean I just have some amazing wonderful friends in the bay area who rallied around helped me charter a research vessel sail out under the golden gate bridge go salvage my boat oh my god yeah yes it was it was crazy that is definitely Um, part of your adventure (laughs) And, and the next
0: season, you it didn't deter you, though. The next season, you relaunched at nighttime at a Sausalito under the Golden Gate.
2: So, yeah, came back to shore, put 200 pounds of lead, uh, resined into the bottom of the boat to help give it more stability. And as David says, the following year, um, set out under the Golden Gate Bridge from Horseshoe Cove. And... Um, yeah, it was amazing to be able to leave from San Francisco itself. Although I do have to say, it's, it's a very difficult city to live to leave. Because rowers face backwards as we're in the boat. So we pull on the oars. And as I'm watching one of my favourite cities on the planet receding into the distance, <laughs> a part of me was going, just tell me again, why are we doing this? <laughs> we uh, spoke
1: with um, uh, Anna Cummings previously in one of our podcasts. And she was talking about how you and her husband, Marcus, who was also sailing on his junk wrap, met up in the middle of the ocean and you each had something to share. And it seemed pretty remarkable, like these two little dots connecting and really making each other's trips successful. Can you tell us about that?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so this was um, on my, my second attempt at the leg from California to Hawaii. And um, both of my water makers had failed, both the electrical one and the manual one. So I was going to either have to ration my water severely um, or just be very thirsty for a while. And yes, exactly. The junk craft that was also out there to raise awareness around the the North Pacific garbage patch. Somebody pointed out, somebody who was following both of our adventures observed that we were sort of converging although when I say converging the Pacific is really really big (laughs) and we were both in very slow and not particularly maneuverable boats so it actually took an enormous amount of effort and coordination for these these two dots to find themselves within sight of each other and I actually had to turn around and row back towards them because otherwise like as a sailboat they kept moving during the night. As a rowboat, when I stopped rowing, I'm really just going at current speed. So we didn't want to be literally ships passing in the night. And there was a real danger of that. And yes, I was very keen to get a resupply of water. And they were also quite keen to get a resupply of food, because they were running low and were down to very, very limited rations. So yeah, we met up a couple of uh, 100 miles east of Hawaii for one of the world's more unusual dinner parties <laughs> we managed to uh, um, find ourselves on the same spot of ocean connect the boats together and Joel uh, Marx's crewmate caught us uh, a lovely fish very sustainably with a harpoon um, from under their boat and we had a fish supper together. I think I had about five helpings (laughs) because I'd not been doing my own fishing but they had it down to a fine art. And yeah, it was sort of a a real bonding experience. So I would decided in advance that I was going to do the Pacific in three stages because it's really, really big. um, And also because, yeah, it'd be a shame to row straight past Hawaii without dropping in for a few cocktails and to catch up with old friends, David. So yes, after Hawaii, so we're now in 2009, I rode from Hawaii to the Republic of Kiribati, which um, with full disclosure, I have to confess, I had not heard of. Um, rowing across oceans has done wonders for my knowledge of um, ocean, ocean geography. Uh, so the Republic of Kiribati is one of these small island nations that has um, very little land that's more than a couple of feet above sea level. So they're really in the front line of climate change. And it was it was quite poignant actually, because yes, I arrived there after a three month voyage from Hawaii and met with the, the, the president and um, quite a few of his staff there and then saw them again that winter in Copenhagen at the COP15 climate change conference. And um, it was just after really the whole conference had fallen apart. You know, there had been such hope that the COP15 was going to lead to a fair and binding deal on climate change. And, you know, as we ocean people know, um, what's happening in the air is happening even more so in the oceans with ocean acidification, often described as climate change's evil twin. So, yes, some crashing disappointments in the uh the the process i would say that uh, that winter in copenhagen and this feeling amongst amongst the um, ekeribas delegation that almost their death warrant as a nation had been signed so that was a you know that really brought it home to me what the human face of climate change looks like and then from kiribati i carried on the following year 2010 to papua new guinea uh, which was also a fascinating experience a country so rich in natural resources but being exploited by big corporations backhanders to the government corruption no benefit to the the local people whose like ancestral heritage is really being being stolen from them
0: and so you're becoming you know an informed a highly informed rower to the challenges that we uh, we face as a species.
2: Indeed. And then even the Indian Ocean, my third and final ocean, which was my my longest single non stop voyage five months alone at sea from Australia to Mauritius. Um, I had to. The
0: coast of Africa.
2: Exactly. I'd originally wanted to come into India, but this was 2011, which was just when the whole piracy in the Arabian Gulf was really hitting its peak. So then I started learning more about why are there Somalian pirates? You know, what's, what's going on there? So like I say, it's really been a, a crash course in global affairs and um, opened my eyes to what's going on in the world and how can we expect people to, like in these developing countries where on Maslow's hierarchy, you know, they're just trying to meet basic needs it's, it's really hard to get them to care about the environment when in, their need for, for food and shelter and water is, is so much more pressing. So again, it comes back to economics. Until we have an equitable economic model that supports regeneration and will pay people to work in regeneration, I, I just think that's a really crucial part of the puzzle. As someone who... I've spent thousands of days at sea
1: um, to raise awareness about the ocean. I wanted to ask you, are you seeing people's attitudes changing about the environment, about the planet, about the ocean?
2: I I am. It's difficult to know from my own self-selecting sample of friends whether that is a general thing. But actually, I do think by any objective measure, I think we've come a very long way. Since I had my environmental awakening in 2003, I think there is so much more information out there the books, the films that I also think it's being made easier for people to do the right thing. So I do feel the shift happening. And also, I still feel like we need a quantum leap. Even during lockdown, CO2 levels in the atmosphere are still rising because of the the time lag inherent in the system. And I, I do think that that shift is going to look like the recognition that everything is connected, that everything we as an individual do day to day makes a difference. And it's up to us to choose whether we're making a difference for the better or for the worse. I think we're recognizing more and more that the damage that we do to the natural world is actually damaging us. The planet will do fine without the humans. The humans without a healthy planet, not so much. So I, I do think that that recognition is happening. And I love it how many books are coming out now about the intelligence of the natural world, whether that is individual species, of animals, of even plants, more and more intelligence is being discovered everywhere. And so I think the respect for our natural world is, is just increasing dramatically at the moment. And yes, please, more of that. Keep up the good work. I love how you have
1: a purpose and you continue on and you inspire others. So it's a
2: joy and thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us, Roz.
2: Bless you both. And it's been so lovely to spend this time with you. And I do hope that before too long circumstances might permit us to meet up other than in little rectangles on a screen.
1: Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support provided by studio kate may of san diego california the theme song is written and performed by ethan kenbar you can find rising tide the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from apple Google or
2: Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier. Tier. Tier. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier.
1: Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are, good boy, Sparky.